Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Wednesday, December the 21st, and you're very welcome to this Christmas politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and today we are going to look back at the political year in the company of historian and Irish Times columnist Dermot Ferreter and Sarah Barden and Harry McGee from our political staff. You're all very welcome for the season that's in it. We've uh, provided enormous pastries, so apologies for any sound effects in the background as we have this discussion. Only two left. Well, you know, there are cutbacks. Have you seen the state of the newspaper industry these days, Dermot? Sarah, I am going to go to you first because I have have to confess that I did something uh, unprecedented on my way into the office this morning. I listened back to one of our own podcasts, our oh, wow. preview of 2016, which we did almost 12 months ago. Oh, no. uh, with <laughs> Stephen Collins and Fia Kelly, neither of us who, whom are, are here oh, today, and your good self, oh, cool. and to see what was going to happen in 2016. And to be fair, it was mostly all pretty much on the money in terms of the general outline of how the, the, the election would turn out. There was quite a lot of talk about how efficient, impressive, well-funded, well-streamlined and well-thought-out the Fine Gael campaign was and what a disaster and a shambles the Fianna Fáil campaign was turning <laughs> so we out to be. So disastrously wrong so is what that, you're telling us. that bit didn't quite turn yeah. out. But I mean, I, I think one of, the, one of the most notable things about 2016 in retrospect is that all predictions uh, turned out to be wrong on many fronts, particularly the, the, the international ones. Mm. So was it a surprising year for you? Um, well, yeah, it was a bizarre year across um, in politics, in particular across the globe. Um, and here, there was kind of um, while the election outcome seemed like a political earthquake at the time. You know, looking back at what's happened this year was really just a tremor. But um, I, I remember thinking in the in the run up to the general election how disastrous Fianna Fáil's campaign was, and how strong Fine Gael seemed to be going into the general election campaign, and. That that obviously turned out to to um, reverse in the weeks that unfolded in the general election campaign, but um, it's been a kind of strange year in politics domestically because while it seems like a lot has happened, you know, very little actually has happened. Mm. I've I, I seem to spend a lot more late nights in Leinster House covering very little, but it seems to go at such a slower pace. Um, there doesn't seem to be, you know, there isn't obviously as much legislation being passed. There's not as much um, private members, bills and stuff, um, you know, progressing things. There's a lot of internal arguing and to and fro and so forth, but it doesn't seem to ever really go anywhere. So it's kind of, it's a strange, it's a strange time to be covering politics domestically anyway. Well, across the globe indeed as well, but domestically too. Harry, maybe we could just go back to kind of first principles and, you know, how we came to where we are now at the end of the year. And really that's all about the, the first couple of months of the year, the, the general election campaign, how it how it turned out, what, what the key narratives ended up being, if there were key narratives, I'm not 100% sure of there that. Were. There were some very big narratives during the year. And uh, Kim and Kanye. And which? Brad and Angelina broke there, up. There was, there One was, Direction there was. broke up as well. But, there was. Um, in okay. the more mundane world of politics, there were a couple of quite obviously big uh, uh, narratives as well. I didn't mention Robbie Brady's goal, at least. Uh, Robbie Brady's yeah. goal was a very important. Well, all of these things, are, in a strange way, are important as well. They go into the kind of the tapestry, the rich tapestry of our lives. But the, the I mean, the two, the two very big significant moments from our point of view was Brexit, in, uh, the Brexit referendum in June and uh, the election of Donald Trump in November, both of which were extraneous, of course, but have uh, very big uh, ramifications for us. Um, I have to admit that um, uh, one of my colleagues sent me a big piece I wrote from November of last year, uh, predicting that Fine Gael were, were within uh, a hair's breadth of uh, getting an overall uh, majority in the general election. How wrong was that? Yeah, and this again... Danger, this is the danger of digital archives, isn't it? You know? uh, well, I mean... <laughs> 
Political commentators are asked to be pundits and we're just no good at the prediction game. We're quite good at kind of analysing what's happened, but we're no good at analysing what's going to happen. And if we were good at analysing what's happened, uh, we wouldn't be sitting in this studio now. It's like talking about the past and the future. Well, it is because and we make the mistake, we, we make the same mistake. I mean, and, and opinion polls are, have very severe limitations uh, as well. And we uh, we. Um, we rely on them like a child relies on a, a gully or a comfort blanket to, to an inordinate extent. Yeah, and let me ask you about that because obviously that was a big issue internationally, you know, later in the year. But even, you know, there's been a lot of criticism around for a few years that that, that the media, of which we are very much a part, uh, relies too much on these kind of horse race metrics to, to, to create the narrative of what an election mm. campaign is, uh, privileging that kind of, you know, pretty dodgy information, frankly, a lot of the time uh, against and, and not focusing on things like what policies, you know, the, the, the parties are standing over, focusing on personality and on opinion polls rather than policies and strategies. Yeah, but it, it, we, we, we have talked a lot this year about populism and I kind of preface by my, my, my remarks with a kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek reference to the likes of One Direction and Kim Kardashian. But I, I think that deep down, um, uh, politicians and perhaps journalists uh, think that people are superficial and they are more interested in the horse race than they are in, in the issues. And the issues only become important uh, when, A, there's a crisis, or B, we're within maybe two or three days of a general election and people are really pressed or forced to the pin of the collars to make up their minds as to which party uh, they vote for. You say My journalists think that. Are journalists right to think that? They're, they're probably wrong to think that. Um, the, uh, Lord Beaverbrook a long time ago said the job, if they job of a journalist isn't to give the public what they want. That's the drug peddler's argument. It's to take what's important and to make it interesting. But we sometimes don't live up to that lofty maxim. We sometimes go for the superficial and go for the superfluous uh, over what is important and what is substantive. And that's there's a weakness in journalism, there's a weakness in politics. And there, they, I think you can see that weakness reflected throughout society. Is that getting worse? I think it probably is. Well, just in relation to opinion polls, I think technically I think there's a difficulty with opinion polls because they've changed an awful lot since the time they were uh, um, developed by, by George Gallup in, in the US. For example, in the US and in Britain, the response rates are tiny now compared to what they were. So when they started them off in the 1930s and the 1940s, when they went out surveying people, 100%, almost 100% of people were, were, were willing uh, to respond. But nowadays the response rate in some cases are only in sing single digits and they have huge problems getting certain cohorts, uh, typically older females and younger unemployed males. And in the States, the the um, the young black vote is particularly hard uh, to poll. And what happens ultimately is they do it again and again, but after a while they kind of run out of cash and then they, they base a lot of the findings on assumptions yeah. and the assumptions are based, so they, based so, on maths. So they apply a whole opinion. bunch of metrics b b because of the problems which, which, which you've just described. They apply a whole bunch of metrics to account for the fact that they're underrepresenting certain segments of the population. But then those metrics, there's metrics upon metrics, and I think we saw this with, 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 with Brexit mm. as well. Uh, then assumptions are made on the basis of those and there's this, there's this process that I think some people describe as herding. Mm. They're looking at all the other opinion polls as well and they're trying to account for those too, which can lead to a kind of a group think, which uh, we saw with, with Brexit. Uh, uh, absolutely. And then you have people who have been, it's a lot of polling nowadays is internet polling as opposed to face-to-face -face mm. or telephone polling. And they each have, each of them have their difficulties. And then at the end, even when, when your data is reliable, you still have a very big margin of error, which is 3% plus 3% minus. So if a party is at 20%, they could actually be 17 mm. or they could be 23%. Which but to that be fair, we, really and I use the word we advisedly here, we then turn into page one headlines about parties dropping yeah, so, and so rising within one, the margin of error. Yeah, if it goes up 1%, it's, it's, it, it's statistically exactly the same as the last one. Hmm. But, yeah, but that's not going to sell any just newspapers. To, just to defend the opinion poll, if I can, the Irish Times ran an exit poll the day before the general election and we had it almost yeah. spot on. In fact, in I think in every general election campaign and in our final poll before the actual campaign, the Irish Times have have actually got it right. So I, I understand what you're saying. There are huge difficulties mm. around opinion polls and our over-reliance on them. 
but you know they they are they are worth some of the money that's being spent on the on them. These exit polls have been quite accurate the last two general elections as well. Yeah, but the, the sample has been bigger. Yeah, the, and, I mean, and it, it comes at a time when people have actually made up their mind. Yeah. You're not asking people to, right. to profess an opinion on something they have no opinion e- about. Even, even exit polls yeah. have come under but the polling, queer, queer the polling criticism is, now. The, the, this the polling year, is exhausting, you know, and there are polls of polls. I mean, they've become mm. a big thing as well. There was a time when opinion polls in this country were not taken that seriously. The first Gallup poll of Irish politics was in 1969 and this was a completely new thing in Irish politics and there was a scepticism about them. And in 1973 um, there was that coalition government that lasted until 1977, the Fine Gael Labour Coalition and they didn't commission an opinion poll before the Doyle was dissolved and Gareth Fitzgerald then wondered could they undissolve the Doyle when they, there was a poll after the election had been called and they realised they were in serious trouble and of course that's the election the Fianna Fáil ran away with with Jack Lynch in 1977 but there was that degree of scepticism about them and we don't really need them we can rely on our, our kind of our gut instinct almost mm. you know, and if you think about politics even back in the 1930s and the 1940s when you know politicians were taking initiatives not on the back of focus groups or polls or anything like that they were going with their instinct and of course that has changed hugely mm. I wasn't surprised by the election of Donald Trump for a very simple reason, I felt that unless Hillary Clinton was eight or nine points clear ahead, she was in trouble. For all the reasons that Harry's outlined in relation to the uh, kind of sampling that's going on. And, of course, there's the silent vote then. And, you know, are people being honest when they're being um, canvassed by polling uh, organisations and so on. Although so I do, I do wonder, Dermot. Like, in addition to the opinion polls in Ireland, for example, there's a, there is still quite a lot of local knowledge in constituencies about how certain people are performing, see, and, and yeah. you know, certain independents. But that's are on also the rise why it's very, very difficult to uh, predict the outcome of an Irish general election under a proportional representation system when you have multi-seat constituencies. You know, it's 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 not like I mean, if you take the Brexit vote, if you take the American election, it's a bit more clear-cut, uh, but. Even with that degree of clarity, you're still getting a lot of confused messages from uh, polls or, or inaccuracies. Well, you had a bizarre situation where the Democratic Party didn't seem to realise it was in trouble in states like, you know, Michigan and Wisconsin and thought yeah. it had them in the bag. Yeah. Which, but I think what was more important in our general election this year, uh, Mark Mortel, who was the chief strategist really for Fianna Gael, directly after the election, he said that we went into this general election deciding that everything would be about the economy. Mm. And that really was the big mistake that was made, you know. If you look at perhaps our most popular politician at the moment, it's the president, Michael D. Higgins. Mm. Now, of course, part of that is because he's above the cut and thrust of uh, party politics and out of the bear pit of the Doyle. But one of his consistent messages throughout his presidency has been about connecting politics, economy and society, that you can't see them as separate spheres or you're in trouble. Politicians do tend to see them as separate spheres. And that's a perfect example of what Mark Mortel was saying, that we're going to go in on the basis that everything is about the economy. And it's the old line, it's the economy stupid. Well, it's not just the economy stupid. And that's one thing that we really uh, learned a lot from this year. And if you take the fragmentation, there was a lot of dissecting of the fragmentation that was represented by the vote. If you take the long view on this, as I always do, you know, between 19, the 1920s and the 1980s, the three biggest parties, as they were, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Labour, between them were able to get over 90% of the vote right up to the 1980s. By 1997, that's gone down to about 78%. By 2011, uh, it's still high, it's still 73%. But then this election, it's 56%. Mm. So that really is a, a, a quite a, a And in a way, isn't reduction. that a, that's an Irish manifestation of, of an international trend, oh, no which, which, which plays out in different ways yeah. depending on the electoral and systems Peter and, Mayer, and the, who, the political who, history. Peter Mayer was a terrific uh, Irish political scientist and the late Peter Mayer, unfortunately. But he identified something that's very relevant to a lot that happened in Irish politics and international politics this year. When politicians are defining their terms of reference by their role as governors or as governors in waiting, they can miss something fundamental, which is about an engagement with the citizens, you know. And this sounds very lofty and idealistic. It's actually not. Uh, what we're seeing now is an awful lot of activism outside of the established political system. And we can see it even a stone's throw from us today mm. with regards to the occupation of Apollo House and housing or the Right to Water campaign. And, you know, that's why we have this fragmentation within politics, but also an awful lot of activity outside of politics. And it's not just Irish. It's, it's happening all over the world. Sarah, what do you think of that? I mean, I think, I mean, to come back to, I was listening to Pascal Donoghue on a rival podcast uh, in, the, in, the, in the last day or two, and he was talking about how that Fine Gael strategy had worked 
largely for Fine Gael in Dublin in, in terms of its performance. He, he held on to his seat against the odds. They, they picked up a couple of seats, not just in Dublin, the greater Dublin area, but really didn't register the further west you went, particularly uh, particularly in the country. So that sense maybe of a divide and one of the divides that we've seen in, in other electoral contests outside Ireland over the last year or so is a kind of an, a, you know, an urban-rural split or in the United States an urban-ex-urban split. Is there a kind of a, a something something there as well that... Well, the that, that the mood of the country in reaction to, you know, the, the keep the economy going message had some resonance in certain parts of the country, but clearly not in others. The, the difficulty with Fine Gael's um, general election campaign was that they seemed to talk down to down to people. Let's keep the recovery going. And, uh, you know, every every rural pocket in the in the country was saying, what recovery? We haven't felt it. While the urban, urban areas might have felt it, and maybe that's why they got a bounce in the Dublin, greater Dublin area. Parts of um, rural Ireland hadn't felt any bounce or any recovery whatsoever. I mean, they, they, they aimed to make the general election campaign solely about the dreaded fiscal space. I mean, if that wasn't a way to confuse and alienate a large section of the population, I don't know what would have. Um, when you make a general election campaign all about figures, facts and fiscal spaces, you've lost an entire um, entire section of the nation. They had an, a, a great deal of arrogance about them um, that, you know, essentially, as Jeremy said, it, you know, the greatest thing Andy Kenny could have done would have been to engage with the people that he was encouraging to vote for Fine Gael and he didn't. He, he, his press conferences were held in warehouses across the country. He didn't shake the hands of people on the streets. He didn't do walkabouts of local towns. I was on the general election bus with him. We vote, he only ever did one walkabout and that wasn't true. Came to meet. And why was that? Presumably, that was because they thought those wouldn't necessarily go well. That was that was a um, a mistake of his advisors and well, his handlers. They're afraid to let him out in public too. It seems a lot of the time to debate. Well, to debate perhaps, but actually, one of the Taoiseach's greatest strengths is when he's one on one with yeah. you know a voter. Like Hearn used to exactly. Excel at. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's something. And uh, um, the Taoiseach has a great, you know, he's qu- he's quite likable, and when he meets people in the street and he shakes their hand and so forth. People so they should have had him. that sort of thing, that, uh, that, that, that Bertie type campaign the in 2002, rushing down the street, exactly. kissing babies, shaking hands. And saying nothing. Yeah, and and saying, saying nothing. Yeah. And if they raised a difficulty, taking you know, their concerns and bringing it back to his constituency office and, and you know, helping them. It's what Michal Martin did and it's probably one of the, the reasons that Fianna Fáil's success um, manifest, manifested itself in the in the um, election result, result was because Mihal went ar- around doing what Fianna Fáil do best, which is courting the people, and, and and the Taoiseach didn't do that, and that's one of the reasons that Fine Gael suffered so badly. So, so there's a number of things there, Harry. I mean, there's there's, there's two separate, not quite contradictory things, but there's they're sort of parallel. One is that. The economic argument, Fine Gael's economic argument, didn't stick, didn't resonate with with enough people, particularly particularly in rural Ireland. Um, but also that the Dermot's more fundamental point that the economic argument isn't sufficient, and that no, there are deeper things. I'd going agree on with as him well. completely. It, it's very hard to make a clean analysis of the harsh political scene because for every uh, assertion that one makes, there's always going to be some kind of exception that might prove or might even uh, betray the rule. I think uh, Sarah was quite correct in relation to Anders. So they had a brain freeze in relation to his strategy. Um, he, he is a particularly good at an Irish political trait, which one might call technically the the how you horse mm. uh, element, where he's very good at meeting people on a one-to-one basis. And when he's allowed to do that, he's been extraordinary. As Jeremy was saying, there's a Bertie quality. He's very like Bertie in a lot of ways, even in the way that he speaks. His sentences are in Kuwait. He doesn't complete his sentences. He talks less like an establishment politician, more like a, a, a man of the people. He's always talking about a woman he met from Kisala or the man who came up to him with two pints. And even though he sometimes rubs people up the wrong way with that, that has a resonance with an awful lot of other... Uh, kind of an Irish version of Donald Trump in terms of the language, if nothing else, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, and the speaks but, the language of the common but, but man. Th- but that, 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 that had purchase for, for Trump during the campaign. Yeah. And his use, there actually have been studies uh, uh, done already on... on Trump's use of language and the kind of the way that he speaks and that very inarticulate way he speaks of this kind of bigging himself up and that actually bigly 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 bigging himself up bigly <laughs> it's huge it's huge, huge. Uh, it's enormous <laughs> people are, people there is are, not people, people better are than him at doing it yeah, okay enough of this but, <laughs> but it, it, it actually uh, it actually it actually works 
Sarah's quite right. I think the economic argument, they, they set the wrong tone for it. They had a tin ear to what, what the electorate wanted and then they got over technical. They got into all kinds of hoops at the start in terms of the of abolishing USC. They were abolishing it for anyone below 100,000 and there was going to be some kind of a wealth tax and then some kind of... It became very complicated mm. and Sinn Féin at a very early stage of the election called them out and called them out successfully and suddenly Fine Gael were wrong-footed and they never really recovered. Mm. Another element in the election was the, the recovery of of Fianna Fáil and I don't think anybody really anticipated how strong their comeback would be even Fianna Fáil themselves we had Billy Kelleher in this very studio talking about a partial recovery and Fianna Fáil having two or three elections before they could even he was talking about a sort of, and he was obviously you know putting the best face on it and he was talking about 35 seats or somewhere around yeah. there you and, know? and they uh, got 40 and, yeah. they, and they, they had a very strong recovery in Dublin now there was what people underestimated was that there were, there were people out there who were culturally Fianna Fáil who had a very strong allegiance to the party who had uh, deserted the party in 2011 but were looking for the flimsiest excuse to return to the party. These are the so-called borrowed votes. Yeah, going the borrowed back. votes. And they, 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 all, they all went back to the mothership in, in, yeah. in 2016 because Micheál Martin had done enough. And that was a factor that people hadn't taken account of. And then the third thing that I thought was kind of interesting was, Jim uh, is quite right, the, the three parties um, it, since the 1980s in particular, the, the proportion of the overall vote that they have acquired has, has fallen. I think it's, it's slightly less than 60% now. But I think that if you look at the way in which the, uh, the vote has fragmented, it's not really, it hasn't really gone to the left. I mean, if you say that the Labour Party is a left-wing party, I know the people before profit and the anti-austerity alliance will, will quibble with that. Um, if, if you accept that they are a party of the left, the left actually went back in this election and the fragmentation went towards the centre. Except that, even to the Fint- right. Fint- Fintan O'Toole in this studio argued immediately after the election that there was actually a tilt to the left because of the way in which the Fianna Fáil campaign, Dermot, was, was mounted and that Michal Martin said on, on, on many occasions that, that he was presenting Fianna Fáil as a, as a party of the centre-left. Now, whatever well, one's analysis well, of that... Now, what's interesting about that, when Pascal O'Donoghue got up uh, earlier in the year to deliver his budget, the first one of the first things he said is, Fianna Gael is a party of the progressive centre. We're mm. a party of moderation, we're a party of the middle ground. So there's a lot of uh, contesting of that particular uh, middle ground space. What's interesting uh, about Fianna Fáil in relation to Sinn Féin is how Fianna Fáil is now trying to define itself. Mm. In many ways, it's defining itself by opposition to Sinn Féin because that's where it sees the, the greatest threat uh, as opposed to uh, Fianna Gael. And it's not all plain sailing for uh, Fianna Fáil in relation to the recovery. Mm. I mean, again, historically, Fianna Fáil between 1927 and 2007 had an average of 45% of the vote. And obviously, they're nowhere near that at the moment, but they are in a hell of a lot of a better position than many would have predicted. But that question is still going to arise as to to where they position themselves. You know, Willie O'Dea was talking afterwards about coalition options, and he said, we can't share, share power with Sinn Féin uh, because the Army Council of the IRA would be uh, running that coalition. We can't share power with Fianna Gael because that will put Sinn Féin in pole position to win the next election. It's interesting in relation to, you know, how they're uh, trying to figure out where they can go from here. Um, And, you know, in relation to the the left-right message, I remember that discussion directly after the election because it was very hard to parse and analyse what constitutes left in Irish politics. If you have a look at some of the messages, say, of Renua, they were laughed off the electoral stage, partly, I think, because of this flat tax proposal. If you look at the Social Democrats, they did quite well. They would have preferred to get a greater dividend in terms of seat numbers. But, you know, Stephen Donnelly was uh, quite adamant that, no, the USC, the universal social charge, we don't need uh, to cut that. Um, and, you know, that's that's a, quite a brave thing to do uh, in, in Irish electoral terms because there's this mantra all the time around tax cuts. But people weren't really buying that. You know, people were seeing, again, a different picture or uh, a bigger picture. So, I mean, what constitutes left? Sinn Féin didn't have a particularly good election. Is Sinn Féin really a left-wing party? No, it's not. Sinn Féin is a Fianna Fáil in waiting. And that's why Fianna Fáil is so worried mm-hmm. about Sinn Féin. Uh, and, of course, the ongoing debate about Gerry Adams and Sinn Féin, I mean, that was a feature of this year, particularly in the, uh, the latter part of the year. Um, and you, know, you don't need to go over all of that ground. We've been listening to these, uh, mm. uh, th- this analysis for so long. Uh, but the interesting question arises as to uh, how Sinn Féin's stance and its policies have shifted 
quite dramatically, even since 2007. Mm-hmm. Remember Jerry Adams talking uh, in 2007 about, uh, you know, super tax for the rich and, um, mm-hmm. you know, talking about a left-wing policy platform. That's all been completely diluted yeah, with a view to one thing. Absolutely. Just gonna say, German is absolutely right and it's going to be one of the most fascinating tug-of-wars to watch over the next number of years. Fianna Fáil are constantly looking to Sinn Féin and can, when, they're, um, when they're creating and drafting their policies. And Sinn Féin are constantly mimicking Fianna Fáil or at least trying to uh, dissuade some of their voters to come towards them. I mean, if you if you look at the recent debate over rent certainty and whether or not we should have it, and there was a meetings of the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party where people were, where they were urging the party leader, Micheál Martin and, and Barry Kane, the housing spokesperson, to support the motion that Sinn Féin had put down on rent certainty. And even though the party was, were saying it's just a motion, it's not going to do anything... There's a new bunch of Fianna Fáil TDs in there who are quite populist and who who want the same like level of um, populism or at least the same level of support that Sinn Féin TDs get when they raise these kind of issues. And it's it's the exact reason that Sinn Féin supported the abolition of water charges that Fianna Fáil mm. completely shifted their entire policy and have now, well, who knows what their policy is now, but it certainly um, has shifted dramatically so, solely so, because of Sinn Féin's So just to influence. understand that, and I'm completely accepting what Dermot says about Sinn Féin's dramatic shift essentially towards the centre from, um, from the left, that Fianna Fáil in turn are being pulled somewhat to the left, or you characterise it as populist, but I mean, they're, they're generally to the left in reaction to the threat from I don't Sinn think Fein. Fianna Fáil have yet to define themselves yet. You know, new Fianna Fáil under Mihal Martin. Martin. Yeah. <laughs> For almost well, a century. That, that's that's, that's the why they've been so successful. Well, when Mihal Martin yeah. took over as leader at obviously a desperate time for the party, but one of the first things he said was, look, I'm the son of a bus conductor. Fianna Fáil has to get back to its roots as the party of the men of no property and this is the direction I'm taking the party. You know, we've lost our way, we've been in power for so long and we lost that connection with people. Um, And the extent to which that can be followed through in uh, relation to policies whilst they're keeping an eye on on, on Sinn Féin and whilst they're in this very interesting new arrangement where they're in government and opposition at the same time, you know, that's a very interesting challenge. And if Fianna Fáil was to set out uh, its mantra or, or its policies, Barry Cowan, for example, said directly after the election, there are serious policy differences between ourselves and Fianna Gael. And we all laughed at that because what had Fianna Gael and Labour been doing only implementing the policy that Fianna Fáil uh, had agreed uh, previously? Uh, and we all know that in, in ideological terms, there doesn't seem to have been a, a jot of difference between them. But there were those in the party, including Barry Cowan, who were trying to carve out that space that there are perhaps social and cultural differences uh, between us, and you know, we we have to be nuanced about well, that. Well, it's the famous phrase that Barry Cowan said at the at the Fine Fáil parliamentary party meeting when he was discussing the formation of government uh, talks. He said, "While Leo Varadkar is sipping cocktails in the marker, we're in Donny and Nesbitt's having pints." It's that yeah. kind of probably Donny and Nesbitt's fairly posh as well. You know, I mean, yeah, knowing Fine Fáil is probably too many of them as well. But that's another thing. Another thing that I thought was interesting in relation to the way the debate was framed. Jermud was refer- re- referencing Pascal Donner, who has bec- who has become the kind of the the intellectual of the of the Finnegal cabinet, very ideological in terms of his outlook. Uh, he presents like a marshmallow, uh, but he is as tough as old toffee in terms of standing to his guns. He's been a very tough uh, m- uh, minister, and he has framed the debate. And you can see a lot of his uh, uh, podcasts and a lot of his interviews recently. He's been framing the debate. Uh, not as a traditional left-right type of divide, but a struggle between the centre and the the, uh, populist or anti-establishment forces coming from either side, from both the right and from the left. And he's saying that the Fine Gael and, to a certain extent, Fianna Fáil are kind of holding that centre against all these kind of fragmented forces that are coming in. And you'll see that on key issues, that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil their policies and their, their their strategy and their decisions will dovetail. And they both realise that there is a symbiotic relationship between them, that they are the people who are holding that kind of centre ground. And for Fianna Fáil to do well, it needs Fine Gael to do comparatively well, not as well as it. And for Fine Gael to do well, it knows that Fianna Fáil must do well. Because if any of them fail, fail, their thinking is that that will let Sinn Féin and, pretty, and others into the gap. You know, when you well, look, look at, at the, the Apple decision. Look yeah. at the way they came together in yeah. relation to the Apple decision. There was yeah. perfect 
alignment but of even, interest. But even in relation to levels of support for both parties, mm. I mean, they're on a pretty even keel mm. at the moment. I just, I, I just wonder, listening to all this, Dermot, that if, you know, you know, people sometimes say sometimes that Ireland made, made the jump from pre-modernity to post-modernity without an intervening period of, of modernity in between. And is there a way that the way this kind of post-ideological kind of discussion you're talking about kind of mimics and reflects what's happening in other countries where you have, you know, traditional Labour voters voting for Nigel Farage's policy in, in the UK, or you have this emerging new vision of a Republican party, which is uh, pro-Russian and anti-free trade. You know, it's a, everything's kind of thrown into the mix in, the, in yeah. a way that all, all the old rules are broken, really. Yeah, and in a way, I mean, there were a lot of parallels being made during the year with the 1930s with the rise of xenophobia and uh, extremism and populism. And okay, you can only take that so far because you have to, uh, you know, look at the altered context, but there is a grain of truth in it. And if you go back to that era, you know, that was an indictment of what was regarded as the previous liberal era that had all gone pear shaped, you know, and the economies uh, had gone pear shaped in the 1920s with the International Depression. There's a lot of economic forces underpinning um, these political directions. Um, so, I mean, you can make parallels in relation to that. I think what's interesting in this country in relation to that specific question is what happened to the Labour Party. Again, a party that um, considered itself to be the left wing uh, in Irish politics for so long and you know, no surprise that the party was almost annihilated during the general election uh, and historically their experiences coming out of coalition have been a disaster. But again, coming back to this question of left-right, where they position themselves uh, in ideological terms and even Brendan Howland now, uh, you know, getting back to basics, a bit like Michal Martin, you know, the idea that we have to emphasise once again where we've come from, what our background is uh, as a socialist party. A lot of people find that very hard to take seriously coming from Brendan Howland, given that he became the Take Your Medicine Minister during the Fianna Fáil Labour, or during the Fianna Gael Labour uh, coalition. But again, they're trying to find that space and it's just become so constricted uh, that they, they really can't seem to do it. And you know, and there shouldn't be dancing on the Labour Party's grave. I made that point after the election that Eamon Gilmore was interviewed after the election this year and it was put to him, if you had stayed in opposition in 2011, you'd be a very, very big party now perhaps the biggest party. And his reply was, yes, but that would have been putting the party before the country. Now, I don't think that's just a meaningless soundbite. You know, I think there's a genuine belief uh, behind that. And you can appreciate the dilemma that the Labour Party found itself in, in 2011. And now they made huge mistakes along the way. And they were far too condescending and arrogant, particularly the senior members in, in uh, the Labour Party. Constant condescending, if poetic, put-downs about pirouetting on the plinth of Leinster House and so on. But that sense that they almost seem to be enjoying austerity. Uh, and they did, some of them did generate that impression and that, OK, we're acting responsibly, we're acting in the national interest and uh, take your medicine. But did they make enough efforts to distinguish themselves within a coalition that we are a separate party? Uh, they didn't. Well, they also managed the message terribly, didn't they? Because that, that message of this is hurting us more than it's hurting you to somebody who's, well, you know, it, it, suffering reductions in their living argument, circumstances. In, you know, in relation to, you know, why do we get X percent of um, the vote and 90 percent of the blame, you know? Well, I mean, if you have a look at what's expected from the electorate of, say, a Fine Gael Labour coalition, you know, Fine Gael did broadly what its supporters would expect it to do. The Labour Party supporters uh, didn't see the party doing what they wanted or expected them to do. Sir, they appreciated they were of the Labour Party clawing back ground over the next one? Well, it comes back to what Harry was talking about earlier and how the media follow the, the uh, to and fro in between and the various kind of internal disputes that go on in, in a government. And that never really happened to a large extent within the Fine Gael and the Labour government. So um, Labour Party suffered because they were seen to not fight for their cause or at least not um, not put for, push forward with their own agenda. And they suffered dramatically for that. Because if you actually look back, and I think it was Harry that wrote the story um, based on a study there was a study done of all what the party committed to in 2011 and what they actually fulfilled. And there was, a, I can't remember the exact percentage, it was a very high percentage of what the Labour Party had proposed in 2011 and what they had achieved in 2016, but they suffered dramatically. The difficulty now is, and you see it with Brendan Howland um, in particular, is that they've kind of lost their way. They're not necessarily sure what kind of a party they want to be. Um, some of the issues that Brendan Howland has chose to raise with the Taoiseach and leaders' questions about judges and um, the, the manner in which they're appointed and stuff like that. Like that isn't that people who vote for the Labour Party don't vote don't vote for them based on their position on judicial appointments. They've lost their way. The private members' bill, um, you know, while it, while it actually is a very good idea about giving. Um, 
giving craft brewery uh, craft brewery brewers a break. Um, you know, it's not going to it's not going to appeal any appease oh, anyone to vote for. We're all in favour of that. Should they have skipped? Should they have skipped a generation? That was an interesting question in relation is the, to is the, the is, the re, is, is the fact not that Brendan Howland is only the, the leader because Alan Kelly was the only other option? Yeah. Oh yeah, that's yeah. Well, that goes that goes yeah. what I'd say. But the other side of things, if Alan Kelly was the was the leader, I mean, there probably would have been an even more difficult campaign because Alan thinks with his heart and not his head. He's, He's a very, an overly truculent. emotional yeah. um, man, and he, you know, he. he I mean, Labour came out of coalition in 1987 and got absolutely hammered. You know, under seven percent of the vote. Sometimes we forget that. Um, in a relatively similar position in percentage terms, this time around, the big difference, of course, is that. Labour, after 1987, was able to rebuild because the space was there to rebuild. The real dilemma for the Labour Party now is that that space isn't there anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, Alan Kelly is, is, and I'm not being pejorative of either him or the Tipperary Hurlers, he's more of a Bonner Maher figure than uh, an Noel McGrath. He's more kind of, you know, go through the, the, the memes of hell and he, 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 he is a visceral kind of a politician. And I think perhaps they needed somebody like Brendan Howland. The difficulty that, that the Labour Party have at the moment is the difficulty that Fianna Fáil had in 2011. The government is making decisions that the Labour Party were party to. Mm. And they can't very well start jumping up and down about stuff that they agreed with. So they have to be kind of subtle and they have to be, you know, they have to duck and weave a bit in terms of, of making proposals. They made, they've made little impact so far, but it's early. We've only, we're only six months since the, elec- since the election. The party has to be given a year to, to lick its wounds, to rediscover its soul. Mm. Uh, he has to go to the constituency. He has to go back. I mean, you're talking about Michal Martin going back to 1926 and the Carew and all, all of that in Fianna Fáil. Labour have to do, go to the same, back to the same, yeah, but Fianna to the Fáil, same place and, Fianna Fáil and do had it. time the yeah. Labour Party don't necessarily they have, have that time. We don't know when the next election is. They'll have a bit of time. They'll have, a, they'll have another year. Yeah. Uh, they, they, ideally, they would have liked a local election between now and the next general election. That's not going to happen. So they, yeah. they won't have the same... They won't have, they won't have what Fianna Fáil had in 2011 or what Fine Gael had back in 2000. They were also sore about social change. You know, how much credit do you mm. get for social change? Little or none, seems I mean, to we're all easy. aware that there mm. would not have been a marriage equality referendum if Labour had not been in power. Uh, Rory Quinn got quite emotional about this when he was retiring, you know, when he was looking back at the long history of the Labour Party, the oldest party, um, and he was making the point that, you know, these are all of the changes that would not have happened without Labour, and he was accurate in that. The problem for the Labour Party has been getting some kind of uh, credit for that when it comes to elections. It doesn't happen. And that comes back to the question we started in relation to what an electorate is looking for or what it is prioritising around election. There was a great feeling of pride uh, amongst so many people around that time, the marriage equality referendum, but that was not going to translate into a bounce for the Labour Party. Yeah, the difficulty for the Labour Party was the Fine Gael hijacked it once they saw the huge yeah. you know, popularity surrounding the, the same-sex marriage vote. Uh, so even though, German's right, it, it would never have happened, but it had Eamon Gilmore not have pushed mm. so hard against his Fine Gael colleagues for it. But it, it didn't make a blind bit of difference to them because Fine Gael hijacked the campaign. And, and, and when you when you actually look back on the pictures of 2015 on May 23rd, it's it's not Amy Gilmore that's pictured. It's actually Panty Bliss and, and Jerry Adams, funnily enough. Yeah. The and, features, Leo, and Leo. And Leo. And Leo. Leo yeah. as well. You know, so because this was Leo made the made the, the announcement um, and came out live on radio and it was seen as such a pivotal moment in the campaign, Suddenly, it was Fine Gael's campaign, and uh, and uh, you know, Labour, the Labour Party were completely sidelined. Even though, when the history books are written, it'll be the, it'll be the Labour Party who will be given the credit. And, and for it, it is kind of extraordinary because it was a huge moment. It was such a significant moment in modern Irish history. Yeah. I mean, people knew when it happened that this was a really important moment in our development as a nation. And when it came to the general election, which was only seven or eight months later, what difference did it make? Absolutely not a well, it's, so it was, it's it's The perennial difficulty of the Labour Party is mm. whether to go into coalition or not. You know, and they've, had, they've wrestled with that dilemma since the foundation of the Labour Party. The Labour Party did the state a lot of service in the 1920s, you know, at the time of the Civil War and afterwards in relation to bedding down the stability of the state, the institutions of the state, you know. So they do have that very illustrious history. But because of the size of the party, they were always faced with that dilemma. If we go into coalition, we're going to get swallowed up. And that's why it's interesting to look at those who are making up the coalition at the moment and those who are determined to be seen 
to be independent within uh, a coalition mm. government if that's not a contradiction in terms. Uh, but of course, they're looking at the, what had happened to the Labour Party and they're and, determined and, and what happened uh, to that bring, that brings me in a way to the uh, saving uh, the presence of our parliamentary correspondent, Michael O'Regan, who isn't in the room, but I know if he would, he'd start ventilating, hyperventilating at the, the phrase new politics and mm. the dispensation, the current dispensation in the Oireachtas, which is pretty much imp- unprecedented historically, isn't it, Dermot? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was all, let's not forget, for a Fianna Gael Taoiseach to be re-elected uh, in the way that Andy Kenny was, you know, that was also a first, but the circumstances of it were unprecedented and were, um, you know, there was an awful lot of analysis in, in the aftermath of the election in relation to Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, civil war politics, time for an end of civil war politics to come together, a national interest in that. But, and this is where the big contradiction in relation to new politics lies, you know. Were Fianna Fáil going to forego the opportunity to become the largest party by staying in opposition and coming up with this deal? No, they weren't. Mm. So in that sense, you know, new politics <laughs> was dead before it was even supposed to start. But I would say this, in relation to the fragmentation of the vote, you could put a positive gloss on that in the aftermath of the election in the sense that there was an opportunity to do things differently. There was a lot of talk about doing Doyle business differently, about you know, creating some kind of consensus around the really fundamental problems we have in relation to housing, in relation to health. And, you know, there, there was an opportunity there to do it, that you couldn't have a situation as has existed really since the 19th century in relation to politics, where, you know, you have a dominant uh, government party which is ramming things through. You have, you know, voting fodder uh, in, in the lobby of the parliament that, you know, you couldn't get away with that anymore because it was quite likely that a government could be defeated regularly and that they would have to work with the rest of the Dáil in order to try and, and get things through. Uh, but as you have said, Sarah, at the outset, there's actually been not very much business done. You know? And why is that? Well, because you have a minority government that's supported by uh, the largest opposition party, so everything has to everything has to be there has to be a deal to get everything through. So the the in 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 the past the executive had so much power that anything the executive wanted to get through it got through because the parliament wasn't able to 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 block anything effectively. But now the parliament is because the government is operating in a minority situation. So every time the government has a big decision to make, it faces a quandary. Uh, does it press to it and kind of bring things to the edge of the precipice and say, you know, we're either going to go for this or if you don't like it, we're going to call a general election. Uh, Stephen Harper did that in Canada with the with the minority government very successfully for two years. Yeah. He played chicken or he called the bluff or whatever a metaphor you want to use every single and time. And in a way, we, we saw that last week. We saw it, That was the first time we saw it last week. Yes, it's brinkmanship. And until, until, until last week, we hadn't seen it. And I don't think we're going to see too much of it because Fine Gael realised that they, they need to work in conjunction with Fianna Fáil. And they also realise that the next government... I, I did an interview with Pascal Donoghue recently in which he said volatility is the new normal. Yeah. So essentially, we in the future, we're going to get more... Uh, configurations like this, not less. But I just added rider to that. Dermot was talking about the fall in support for the three traditional parties. It's not a completely linear fall. So you see, for example, that the stock of the independents went up very largely yeah. in this election because people thought that independents would have purchase. They could make a difference. I, I think that in the next election, a lot of those votes that went to independents will come back uh, to, to all of the three bigger parties. So you'll see perhaps their support levels going up to 60% or more. The, 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 not all independents are the same. There are very different kinds of independence. Yeah. There are, there's the independent alliance, there's the, there's the other rural independence from around the country. Mm. They, they generally tend to have quite a different take on affairs from than other people who are lumped into that and, bucket and lots, sometimes. Like and lots, the of them are G, PDP, lots of them who are gene pool independents. So if you trace back, if you scratch them deeply enough, there's, there's a Fine Gaelor or a Fianna Fáiler yeah. d- deep in there. I mean, there's, I think I think it's so 14 of, of the TDs, 15 of the, the TDs. The votes that went to the Healy Rays, and I mean, yeah. where did the Healy Rays start? Mm. You know? mm. And yeah. isn't, isn't, isn't there a reality then that, that what Fianna Fáil are doing, and I think they've more or less acknowledged this, is that this is a dry run for what the next Fianna Fáil government is going to be like, probably in some fashion mm. or another, because the arithmetic is going to be probably not that much different if Fianna Fáil become the largest party and they're looking to form a government, probably again with the support of independence, and they'll need they'll probably need a nod and a wink from Fine Gael as well, won't they? Yeah, I think if you, if you face a general election, in the new year, which 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 we potentially could trip our trip our way into, the configuration probably won't change that dram- dramatically or drastically. It might just be 
a different party sitting on either side of the doll. Uh, there is a large expectation that it'll be Fianna Fáil leading the next government, but that they will require the level, that uh, they will require the support of a number of independents and no doubt probably some assistance from Fine Gael from the opposition benches. Um, I think there, the, the difficulty now is there's a there's a loss of trust between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, which took place last week when the rental strategy was was launched and how they rectify that in the future will will be a key test for the, this minority government and whether it will sustain because there's a there's a fear I suppose that the water charge debacle and the issue of water charges in their future in March when it all comes to a head that that could potentially trip us in to a general election and because there's now a level of distrust in particular between the Fianna Fáil spokesperson um, Barry Cowan and the Minister for Housing Simon Coveney because of what happened last week that potentially could be a very tricky relationship and one that the, 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 that either side can't really afford for it to be uh, to, to be a tricky relationship. And so, this is the biggest issue really, it's the biggest political issue at the moment. It'll the be the trickiest, issue. well the housing issue is the is the biggest issue facing the country um, and I think what you saw last week with the rental strategy was um, an attempt by Simon Coveney to keep it, his rental strategy very much under wraps because he didn't want to see a situation where landlords automatically hijacked their rent you know, knowing what was coming down the tracks but by doing that he hid his plans from his cabinet colleagues. He hid his plans from the Taoiseach and he hid his plans from the main opposition party of which um, he, he he desperately needed their support. And it, it what manifested itself then was two or three days of public wrangling between the two parties, which gave the landlords the opportunity to hijack their rents if, if they so chose to do. So the housing issue... Um, requires a great deal of support between um, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael if they want to get anything over the line. Um, but there is a damage. There is damage done to the relationship between those the, the two people I mentioned, Cowan and, and, and Coveney, um, which has actually manifested itself throughout both parties. Because l- last week, when Simon Coveney stuck to his four uh, percent rent cap in Dublin City and Cork City, everyone from Fine Gael was cock a hoop because they had seen. To get one over on Fianna Fáil, um, and they had they had a victory they had a victory over Fianna Fáil when it had up to this point it had all been about Fine Gael getting victories over them, so uh, that level of kind of disdain then from Fianna Fáil, Fianna Fáil towards Fine Gael when they seen how cock a hoop Fine Gael were about it, I just see I just think if they don't if they don't resolve those difficulties it could potentially come become a big issue for and them. Isn't in the it extraordinary year. that if you were to explain Irish politics to an outsider back at the time when the government negotiations were going on that the issue on which all would rise or fall was paying for water. You know, when you look at it in those terms, particularly if you're talking to somebody who has been paying water for for decades because Mm. that's what you do and they don't see any issue with it and they think it's actually quite a a progressive thing if it's done fairly. Now, of course, you can argue about the way it's been done. It's been a disaster and dysfunctional. But none of the parties have covered themselves in any glory uh, when it comes to this water issue and, you know, the the shameless uh, pirouetting uh, and somersaults that have been going on in relation to water would make you very, very cynical. I, I was just flabbergasted. I mean, if Sinn Féin or the AAA people before Profit Alliance had gone into government, you could understand that water would be a key issue. But Fianna Fáil, blow me down. Like two, two, like two thirds of the, of, the, of the stability and confidence supply thing was, was dominated by this thing on water charges. And we looked at the exit poll, the RTE exit poll, for example, yeah. showed that it was a key issue for only 8% of people. It's a big issue, but Fianna Fáil made a huge... So is that, Harry, because, to come back to kind of something that came up earlier, is that because of the absence of ideology? Is no, that something no, that then becomes this huge I think, I think, totemic I think issue because there aren't a lot of other good ideas floating around about how to make the country better? Some of the reason goes back to what Jermud and Sarah were saying earlier on about Fianna Fáil's relationship with Sinn Féin and its fears of Sinn Féin and, it, and it's, its paranoia that it's not going to get outflanked by Sinn Féin mm. under any circumstances. And I think that they were trying to look around corners and predicting what were the things that they would be vulnerable on yeah. if they were to support Fine Gael in a minority uh, situation. And, and it has provided a, a, a ticking time bomb on, on two fronts. The one that Sarah said, this, this, we're, go- we're going to have a showdown in March uh, when the committee comes back with its recommendations. And if it is advocating, I must say the expert group produced... A wonderful fudge just in time for Christmas, which we can always enjoy. It was every single uh, possibility was was included and no real recommendation that a politician could say that's something real and tangible. We can run with that. So the committee will really be charged with taking all the tough decisions in relation to it. But there's a second element to it, and Jim would refer to it, those who have paid. And those who have paid 
find that there is uh, an injustice there, that water charges have been abolished and those who defied and didn't pay seem to be rewarded and those who complied and did pay. And there's quite a lot of them, a majority of uh, subscribers paid at one stage. They didn't pay all their bills, but they certainly paid at, at least one bill. And, and most there, probably a, major, a, a more substantial majority of Fine Gael voters and probably Fianna and, Fáil voters. And Fianna Fáil voters. Mm. And uh, that, that's, that's, that's a substantial cohort of people. Mm. They mightn't be mobilised and they mightn't be engaged in the same way as the anti-water charges uh, people were. But I think that there will be a, uh, at the very least, a residual anger and resentment uh, at whatever solution is arrived at, if it doesn't involve justice for, for or, or uh, equality, should I say, uh, for those who have already paid. I think the Commission, uh, at the end of its report, said that it shouldn't be treated differently to those who haven't paid. But, but they, the, political, they, they, the political piggybacking that has gone on, because, I mean, let's not forget, Paul Murphy's election, when he was elected and Sinn Féin decided then, OK, we're vulnerable on this front, mm-hmm. you know, so we're going to switch. Fianna Fáil then uh, <coughs> switching. You know, Fianna Gael have been somewhat more consistent. Uh, but as you say, in relation to those who have paid, those who haven't paid, we've already heard conflicting um, views on that from within Fianna Gael. So uh, the yeah, spring a, is, it, is going to be interesting. Listen, before we wrap it up, I want to turn our eyes to slightly more elevated thoughts for a moment. This was the year of the centenary uh, commemorations of, of 1916, Dermot, something uh, that you're particularly well qualified to comment on. I have to admit, I, I I started the year looking forward with some sort of foreboding to how all this stuff would pan out, that it would be somehow, I mean, the, 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 the celebrations or commemorations over the last couple of decades have been a kind of a source of kind of discomfort and embarrassment rather than of, of celebration. But it all turned out quite well, really. Yeah, and it was dignified and there was a lot of engagement and there was a sense that it was owned by the people as opposed to the state. Now, of course, the state has to play a very formal and proactive role in commemoration uh, and organising commemoration and funding commemoration. And it came up with a coherent plan eventually after we were applying as much pressure as we could to get a plan. Uh, and it worked very well. We also had a head of state, President Michael D. Higgins, who was very, very visible and very vocal and very engaged with the themes and the relevant themes. And, of course, he's of the generation. His father's uh, generation, his parents' generation with the Civil War generation. He feels quite a lot of this personally, I think. Um, And he was very much a part of it. And that's how it should be. Because, again, if you go back to this question, there's often fears about commemoration being hijacked by various political parties. And, you know, the the role of the president, I think, was particularly significant. But that sense, even in Dublin City, say, on Easter Sunday and Easter Monday, Mm. that the city belonged to the people, um, and I don't mean that in a twee way, you know, that you know, th- th- this was about it being OK to express pride. Not that we're going to ignore the complex debates and the very different views that exist with regards to uh, the morality or the politics of what happened uh, in 1916, but that, you know, those differences can be allowed to breathe uh, and that you don't have as a backdrop uh, the IRA campaign, because if you go back to previous comm- commemorations, that hugely complicated it. Do you think? It, do you think it made a difference at all that we had a, um, a Fine Gael-led government and a Labour president? Michael D. Higgins wasn't, you know, behind the door in articulating what you might call the Citizens' Army perspective mm-hmm. on the on on the rising, which I thought worked very well. Fine Gael, perhaps because Fine Gael were were in government, there was a very very strong emphasis on the organs and the institutions of the of of the state and their their legitimacy. Well, yeah. There um, was also, do you think it would have been different? Well, it was also Fine Gael absolutely determined to place themselves as a party that came out of 1916. John Bruton, former Taoiseach, was very vocal and very consistent, uh, and he has been over the decades in relation to his belief that 1916 was a terrible mistake and that we need to make more of the constitutional tradition on Redmond. He was publicly slapped down by Enda Kenny, who said very clearly... And we talked earlier on about how rare it is that Enda Kenny says something very clearly. He said, we are a party of 1916. So that was interesting. And Labour, of course, was going to emphasise the... Although the reality is that Fianna Fáil was always a coalition of treaty-supporting rebels and former Redmondites, wasn't it? But what what they had in common, what Fianna Fáil and Fianna Fáil Fáil had in common in relation to the commemorations was that they weren't going to allow Sinn Féin to hijack commemoration. Fianna Fáil, you mean? Fianna Fáil is. Did I say Fianna Fáil? Fianna Fáil, I beg your pardon. 
Fine Well, certainly yeah, not. Fall, no. But they, they were quibbling <laughs> with that slightly. They, they weren't going to allow Sinn Fein <laughs> uh, to, to hijack the commemorations. And I thought that was interesting because Jerry Adams has been very vocal in recent years around commemorations and the idea that Sinn Fein is the only true Republican Party. Uh, well, that wasn't accepted and that was resisted. Uh, that was interesting in in party political terms. So the commemoration of 1916 did not become divisive in relation to Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and Labour. And there was actually an all-party uh, group on commemoration, uh, an Oireachtas group on, on commemorations. And again, cleverly, including members of all different parties mm. and none. Sarah, did any of this really mean anything or was it just an excuse for a bunch of parades and... No, I actually thought it was a, a moment of great pride for the country. I mean, the moment when I, uh, I wasn't present now, but I was at home watching it. Um, I think I covered the one in, in Glasnevin Cemetery that, that morning and then went home and watched the events um, outside the GPO. And I just thought it was an extraordinarily extraordinary moment to watch um, such a huge amount of people turn out for this event. I mean, Dermot's right. It was, it was while it was organised by the state, it very much all became about the citizens and the people. And the amount, I mean, the, the pictures of the people who had, who were um, lined the streets all across Dublin City Centre it was incredible to witness. And, you know, I think if you take the politics aside from, uh, out from it and, and there was a, a, a great deal of um, delay in getting the commemoration plans, you know, even onto the agenda, um, when, when you look back at what actually, what actually came to be, it's, it's a source of great pride for, um, for, the, for the Minister, for um, Minister Heather Humphreys, who was, who was pivotal in, pivotal in organising all of this. It's a moment of great pride, the manner in which it, it, it turned out. I did. I did notice as well, though. Just to, to every other party political leader was at the GPO. If I'm not mistaken, I don't think Sinn Fein leader Jerry Adams That's right, yeah. didn't. I don't. He I don't think he was in Belfast, as far as I know. I think Martin McGuinness was there, though, was he? Uh, anyway, I I'm not sure. I, I seem to remember seeing Martin McInnes there, but perhaps not. Yeah, I just, um, I mean, they, the thing about 1916 is that all of those who were involved, the leaders knew that they were, were probably they were going to lose and they were probably going to end up being executed. And I mean, that there that, that was a, a, an exercise of, of sacrifice and it was described as a blood sacrifice and that has created lots of controversy uh, over the year but in, in the day beforehand one of James Connolly's friends was asking well do you have any chance of succeeding he said we're going to be slaughtered and they were slaughtered and I think people recognise that I think one of the one of the key things this year and uh, Jeremy and Sarah referred to was the, the, the disposition that Fine Gael had and it decided at an early stage that it was going to wrap the Republican flag around it. One, uh, an inf- one of our most, more influential historians a colleague of Jeremy's uh, um, um, Ronan um, Ronan Fanning uh, uh, said that, that the, the, uh, the birth certificate of every nation is steeped in blood. And he says we have to recognise it. We have to recognise it in the context of the, the time. And we have to re- recognise in the context of, of what they set out to do and what they, they achieved. And I, I think that, as Sarah said, I think most people looked at the year with pride. I think the, the uh, commemoration was proportional. I think there was uh, a lack of jingoism. I think people were able to put, uh, a century later, people were able to look at the events of that time and see how pivotal they were and put them uh, into some kind of perspective and understand uh, what the motives were in 1916, that there, were, there might have been diff- different impulses and different motivations back then. But and it was what, extraordinary. what, if anything, is, then, is the legacy of uh, those commemorations this year at a time when, I mean, all kinds of other issues of sovereignty in relation to the European Union, what's going to happen with Brexit, all those types of things are, are, are in the air do you think we oh, come out at the end of, of 2016 feeling somewhat differently about, about what it means to be an Irish nation? Well, we did at the this time 100 years ago, uh, a lot of the 1916 prisoners were getting ready to be sent home. And they came home Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, uh, including a young Michael Collins, who was relatively unknown at that time. And um, he went down to Cork to Woodfield and the police were keeping an eye on him. And the police report said that nobody's taking any notice of Michael Collins and he seems set for a retiring kind of life. Uh, and that turned out to be a very <laughs> false sense of security because yeah, yeah. he hot-footed it back to Dublin in January 2017 and so began, of course, that whole period War of Independence onto the Civil War. And that raised all of these questions of sovereignty and what the struggle against British imperialism meant, but also what you might do with independence. And they're all relevant to our discussion of, of 1916 and all the commemorations that are coming. A lot of the things that happened uh, during this year are, of course, relevant to that. Gareth Fitzgerald, whose father was in the GPO in 1916, would have always argued that the reason why we were able to become a member 
of the EEC, what became the EU, was precisely because we did achieve our independence and it could emphasise our lack of dependence on Britain if we could go in as an independent state into the European Union. But, you know, to what extent did that involve compromising sovereignty? Um, and there was much made in recent times of Ireland winning back its purse and so on. But even some people would you know, question uh, the extent to which any kind of meaningful sovereignty uh, exists as it would have been understood by those who were seeking to achieve uh, independence. And that's a bigger question about the nature of the EU, obviously. Um, uh, but there's also the, uh, the question of what constitutes, say, an independent foreign policy in relation to you know, the most meaningful manifestation of independence and sovereignty in the formative decades of the state was a policy of neutrality, mm-hmm. uh, that you cannot claim to be independent unless you can exercise an independent foreign policy. That was very much uh, a, a part of uh, de Valera's architecture, political architecture in the 1930s and, and that's the 1940s. changed greatly since of course it's changed uh, hugely. Mm. So all of those uh, issues are particularly relevant. I think, though, one of the reasons why the commemorations were quite successful is because Anglo-Irish relations are so good um, and it was often asserted during the year that they've never been better but then you had that spanner in the works uh, more than a spanner in the works with, with the Brexit and that has implications not just of course for Anglo-Irish relations but also for Northern Ireland and I think one of the greatest challenges and not enough has been made of it is to do with the question of sovereignty in Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland has a particular arrangement in relation to self-determination Um, arising out of the Good Friday Agreement. And all of that's hugely complicated by Brexit and the idea of Northern Ireland being taken out of the uh, EU against its will. It's relevant for Scotland too. But the Northern Ireland case is different. Northern Ireland has been treated differently because of the particular circumstances. Uh, And again, you know, that's a legacy of that era of partition and the events that we'll be looking at in great detail in the coming years. It is, but we've been looking at that stuff, I suppose, for many years and quite rightly so, and with some success, very much focused on our own experience in recent years and ending the troubles. And Mm. the broader picture now is that economic nationalism appears to be on the rise everywhere, you know, and that's putting it mildly. In fact, much uglier forms of that appear to be on the rise. There's no doubt about that. And I mean, we only have to look at Trump. Uh, and in particular the idea now it's farcical you know the idea that he is going to revive the Rust Belt that he's going to bring back the heavy industry and there's a nativism there uh, not just in relation to economics but in relation to uh, other forces and you can take all of that with a pinch of salt Uh, but it does highlight the degree to which there is an appetite for economic protectionism and that's very understandable at a time when people are not feeling the so-called benefits of globalisation. Uh, and again, I think a lot of the arguments are skewed there in that you know, globalisation is part of the problem. It's not the complete problem. Mechanisation, changing technologies, jobs being done by robots that used to be done by people. I mean, th- 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 that's a big issue in relation to those huge swathes of America. Um, but also poverty. And I don't think we appreciate that enough, just the depths of poverty that exist in the United States. We can be in something of an East Coast bubble. Not to say that there isn't poverty in the East Coast in America, but you know that uh, the outrage that we felt about an awful lot of what Donald Trump was saying and doing, very justifiable. But, you know, the reason it resonated, uh, and some of those reasons, again, you, you can see the parallels with the situations that were there in, in earlier decades where there was a demand that we, you know, make our own country a priority or we make our own country great again. That's a very old slogan. And what we got this year, and we got it in Britain as well, well they're updated versions uh, of old slogans old slogans and it is it, it can be a very crude and quite dangerous form of nationalism but it's very appealing we don't see any sign of it here interestingly not yet but I suppose the Irish political um, spectrum is always a little bit slower to, <laughs> to catch up with the rest of um, the rest of the world I mean I think Donald Trump's election while Dermot's absolutely right what he said resonated with um, a great deal of voters who, who were um, who were poor and were out of work and his promises to bring um, ba- bring them back to work um, obviously resonated with them but his opposition had a lot to do with it as well. I mean Hillary Clinton herself was an extremely poor candidate and you would have to wonder whether he, if he had a stronger opponent um, whether he would have won the, the US election. What you saw with Brexit, I suppose, was completely different because that was sort of rallying against the system. Whereas I think with Trump's election, um, it was a disillusionment um, with Hillary Clinton herself and thinking that, I mean, whenever, whenever anyone talks about the US election, um, Hillary Clinton was described as the lesser of two evils. And when you're competing against that sort of a mantra, I mean, Donald Trump's election, while he, while it was a lot to, 
to do with um, his language and his populism. Hillary Clinton's weakness as a candidate also had an And I suppose finally, uh, finally, Harry, because we do need, need to wrap it up pretty soon, another reason why Trump won, albeit lost the popular vote by three million uh, votes or, or thereabouts is because he was presented himself successfully as the candidate of change. Uh, the blue-collar blue billionaire. And, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, we don't have time to go into all that now, but he presented himself successfully as the candidate of change yeah. the, and the, Clinton the, was seen as the candidate of the elite and the status yeah, quo. it was establishment first. And, and is, establishment. That, 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 uh, is, that, is that a lesson for our politics? That is, I, I wouldn't agree with Sarah. I think that Hillary Clinton was a very good candidate, but I think she was probably the wrong candidate for, for the wrong time. That's a subject for another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Just in terms of, of the situation here, you, you, you see that when you go out to constituencies, especially in urban areas and working class urban areas, you see a lot of the sentiment that you saw with Brexit in the States, people hankering over in Ireland that doesn't exist anymore, uh, giving out about the way in which the state is coming down heavy upon them and particularly giving out about immigrants and the, the, the wrong perception that immigrants are achieving or are, are receiving far more uh, than local people. The difference in Ireland is that that hasn't nested or alighted upon any particular party. And one of the things that Sinn Féin's presence is that Sinn Féin could have been the natural repository for that type of anti-establishment vote. But in fairness to Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin has never sought that and has always made it clear that it's not that kind of party. It's never going to 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 mirror those messages. But there certainly is a, a, a sentiment out there. Maybe the sentiment isn't strong enough. Uh, to translate into a political movement, into a political party. But it's definitely out there because every time I've gone out with politicians, I'd say three or four people out of ten that they talk to, in, especially in working class areas, will give out about immigration. And it is a problem and it's something that they're going to have Sooner to confront to some stage. That's a fine political expression. Okay. Yeah, but I, like, it's been a frightening year in all sorts of ways. But let's give ourselves some credit. I mean, I take the point you're making, Harry, but if you look at the forces of extremism as they are manifesting themselves in various parts, we don't have that to the same extent, and we never have. And if you go back to the earlier era uh, where this was very alive, very dangerous, and, and culminated in terrible tragedy, you know, the 1930s, again, we resisted that. That was resisted in this state. You know, we had our own smaller Irish versions of the extremism that was going on in Europe at that time, and it was resisted. Um, and, you know, you could say there are certain advantages to the lack of those deep ideological gulfs in Irish politics, and that was probably one of them. Uh, and we still have that to a certain extent, and it's something that we should be very mindful of, and it's something we can be quite positive mm -hmm. about. On that positive and uplifting note, thanks for that, Dermot. We'll leave it there. Uh, it remains for me, all, for me just to wish the three of you a very Merry Christmas. Thanks very much, Ari, Dermot and Sarah. We'll hopefully see you in the new year. And I'll just say thanks also to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or tweet me at hlinehan, but I'm sure you'll be much too busy enjoying Christmas. So until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.